Hello and welcome to this Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves. I am Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library. And I am being joined today by Dr. Sunny Xiang, Assistant Professor at Yale University, who has conducted research at the Hagley Library um, supported by an exploratory grant from the Center for the History of Business, Technology and Society for her book project, The Trans-Pacific Middle which explores the American Cold War in Asia through the culture of ephemeral literature, including fashion magazines, pulp fiction, and advertisements. And in doing so, Professor Xiang raises methodological questions about the nature of evidence, investigation, and the archive itself. And Asani, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, well, I'd like to start with the the big idea, sort of framing your work. What is the trans-Pacific middle and how are you using it to think? Well, um, I must first confess that since I wrote that initial grant proposal, the project has shifted a little bit and mm -hmm. I mean, it's still evolving. It's actually something that I'm just sort of at the beginning stages of. Uh, I finished a book recently that's coming out in about two months or so. And so this is me doing research in a very forward looking way where um, the larger book project is still kind of um, being imagined. So for starters, I probably wouldn't call it the Trans-Pacific Middle anymore. Okay. But, um, and I guess the other thing I should say is that uh, some of the major changes in how I've been conceptualizing the larger project is a direct result of doing research at the Hagley. Uh, so that's nice um, that I went yeah. in with one thing and then came out with something else. So, would you, would you please explain that to me, sort of uh, yeah, yeah. Both, both what was the idea at first and how did the research change? That's right. Really so, um, the I mean, I think your description of the Trans-Pacific Middle and some of the questions about methodology and evidence are still central to kind of the questions I'm asking. But I went in maybe with a larger conception of, oh, I'm interested in something about culture and perhaps militarism and travel during the Cold War period. And then I came out with something a little bit more, I think, focused. So now I, uh, I've been still working through proposals. So the version of the title I've been using recently is Atomic Wear. So it's more focused on clothing and fashion magazines, as you mentioned, uh, and more on um, the culture of chemistry or something about the atomic age and trying to figure out and I, I'm trained as a literary scholar and I would probably consider myself something of a cultural historian or critical race theorist so I'm not a historian in the conventional sense but I'm interested in what it might mean for say the atomic and the atomic age to be a descriptor of a style and how might style be its own kind of evidence so I think that's where some of the methodology comes in um, and for me, what really, I, I mean, it was only an exploratory grant, so um, I would love to go back someday and kind of poke around some more. Uh, but what surprised me, at least based on what I was looking at, is that uh, it was astounding how, um, how much of an architect of style uh, the DuPont company was and uh, how these questions of style were, and I think this is more based on my own reading and less in the archive itself, um, but how that might be related to questions of US militarism in Asia and the Pacific Islands. So what collections uh, were you looking at then at Hagley? Uh, so I poked around a little bit. Uh, I don't know if I have their exact names. Some of them were um, histories of specific fibers 
And then actually what I found most interesting um, was actually the, um, the product information or the textile product information where it was mostly just advertisements and photographs and um, news releases, which sounds very superficial, but to me it was just so um, intriguing to see how, uh, what the language of advertising was and how that kind of language picked up on certain aesthetic features and how there was a certain visual language and a haptic or a tactile language that went into that as well. Uh, so from um, the perspective of someone reading for cultural evidence, uh, that seemed like it was um, really fruitful. And then uh, I, I actually spent a few days actually with the Dictor papers and I hadn't intended to do that. Uh, and that, and it, I mean, it was almost like, oh, this is a rabbit hole I could go down under. And, you know, it was so voluminous and um, he was so interested in everything uh, that everything could be psychologized in this way. And that ended up, I don't know how exactly it'll be useful, but everything seems like it's kind of pulsing at the edges where I could kind of latch onto it. Uh, so I had a lot of fun doing that. Well, um, can you perhaps tie uh, the, the fashion and the atomic era together for us? Maybe for listeners who uh, are, or for myself, who maybe aren't familiar with the context very well. Yeah, sure. So um, I actually became interested, or I learned about DuPont through reading uh, about its involvement in the Manhattan Project during the Second World War. Uh, and I was reading this kind of stuff alongside um, some histories by indigenous scholars in um, the Pacific Islands. And specifically, uh, I became interested in how the bikini, the swimsuit, uh, was the legacy of um, the US nuclear tests at Bikini Islands. Mm -hmm. And these are kind of different histories, but there seems something about that at the time I found surprising that um, women's clothing and eventually I would be, uh, right now I'm particularly interested in women's lingerie or foundation products, that something so intimate and close to the skin uh, could be also bound up in this larger history of nuclear chemistry and nuclear experimentation. So I think the exact linkages and the scientific linkages, I'm less able to kind of parse out for you, but there's something about the culture, I think, of an atomic culture, I think, um, that somehow engaged both, I would say, a trans-Pacific culture more broadly, something that we do see in literature, television, film, but that really, I think, it's expressed through something like clothing and not necessarily clothing as um, fashion in a dramatic sense, but clothing like underwear um, and things that um, became important during the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. So, and I mean, in both these reasons, I, or in both these domains, it seems like we hear a lot about gender, especially in the fashion realm. But I think the question in examining something like fashion uh, and atomic history together is what the question of race is and how we're thinking about something like islands um, or something like the Orient at a time when it's a location for war and nuclear tests, but also you know, something that gets imagined in fashion and kind of more cultural ways or more ethnicized ways. So the, the, the clothing takes on symbolic meaning symbolic significance that can change over time 
is, um, is it about uh, modernity or expertise um, and sort of consuming those things or putting them, identifying with them with bodily closeness or? Uh, I think there is something about uh, thinking about modernity or American modernity during this time as being an imperial modernity uh, and not, I mean, I think so much of the, there's so much wonderful scholarship on consumerism and uh, the development of suburbs and something like a conformist culture uh, or certain social norms during um, this period. But I think what I find sometimes frustrating about this scholarship is that it really, it, it kind of, um, it paints an enclosed picture, but doesn't help us see that this culture of, uh, Pacific or like peaceful living of um, everyday routines was a kind of ideological construction that's very much bound up with a larger Cold War geopolitics. Uh, so in thinking about modernity as something that gets expressed through fashion, which I think fashion scholars have really identified, hopefully for us, that I think makes us recognize that modernity is not just say capitalist modernity or a democratic modernity, but both of these are part of US empire building. And, uh, and the Pacific during this period is a particularly vital arena for that. It was, yeah. Um, so the, I'm working on an article right now, which I'm hoping is kind of the first piece of the book. And that's focused a little bit on the bikini, but more on um, lingerie and women's underwear and for foundational products. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing that I became interested in was the history of the Bali bra. So how is it that um, these articles of clothing that are really quite generic, we don't really think of them, we think of them as gender, truly, uh, maybe even sexualized, but not really racialized, because we're so used to thinking about the normative white heterosexual middle class suburban white woman as kind of the protagonist of this period as the ordinary American. Uh, so what happens then if we kind of trace the longer history of these seemingly generic garments and the advertisements and the associations that went with them, uh, how do they allow us to think about something like wartime and peacetime or uh, self and other distant and um, home, domestic and um, foreign, I guess, uh, through something like clothing. And, and that's really what cultural studies are all about, is about uh, unpacking and unteasing those those connections? Yeah, I think that's the promise of cultural studies. Um, I think for a while, some people made fun of um, the idea of looking at cereal boxes or something um, for cultural meaning, but um, maybe to look at that less cynically, there is something about uh, ordinary products or products that are deemed ordinary that have a story to tell of some kind. Um. What are some of the special challenges of researching um, ephem using ephemeral sources, uh, protect, particularly perhaps uh, commercial, commercialized culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know if this is regarding ephemeral sources per se, but I will say one of the challenges I deal with now is more ethical and thinking about I mean, I found the DuPont archives incredibly helpful and um, versions, so many histories I've been written about uh, DuPont. And um, 
if I were to tell, want to do a critical analysis of say, um, imperialism and militarism, something involving, um, let's just say the Marshall Islands or um, Hawaii or some, um, a, a place with a deep indigenous history, how would one do that respectfully? Uh, and with the careful kind of research and uh, talking with people uh, who would be able to have their part of, their, uh, of the story represented as well. So it's a different kind of, it's not ephemeral as in say um, uh, products that get thrown away or that we don't really keep, but more that the products that were the kind of historical documents we have available tend, and the ones that I mean I go to and I find useful are in fact those that you know have been institutionally preserved. Uh, so that's something that I think about a lot uh, in terms of accessing, well, one big dilemma right now is the COVID pandemic. <laughs> um, a lot of archives are closed, so it's been really hard to further my research. And um, even when I identify archives, I can't actually go. So actually the Hagley Library was the last place I visited for this project. Um, and even um, trying to work with older magazines right now, it's really hard to, I mean, even with um, uh, my library's proxy access, I still can't see everything without being there in person. So I think that's the main barrier right now, but they're probably less practical and more, um, uh, more intellectually motivated ones I could talk about, but those are the ones I'm feeling at the moment. <laughs> sure. Sort of the feeling the the weight of. Um, so, well, I was quite intrigued by sort of what you're driving at or describing, um, sort of the ephemerality of experience or of perspective, mm -hmm. and how if something uh, doesn't make it into an archive of one kind right. or another, right, it, it becomes very difficult even for someone um, with an interest to access. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, one reason that I, I mean, it's impossible, I think, to document, say, what all women wore in um, 1956, or even for a single day or a single week. Uh, I, I think one reason that I find it useful to turn to cultural sources or aesthetic sources, so fictional texts, uh, movies, uh, theater, music even, that um, so there's a critic Raymond Williams who uh, has this wonderful way of um, describing art and culture as uh, sources for providing some kind of access to a historical moment that may not have been um, codified into actual uh, institutions or norms or documents that they might be able to uh, have some kind of inflection that helps us perceive something about a historical time that perhaps a different kind of document would not. So that's one reason I find it useful to uh, look at artistic works. And that's kind of my, uh, you know, I can't look at everything, but here's um, a film that might be able to give us some insight that's especially useful. Something else you mentioned really piqued my curiosity um, that you found DuPont to be a fashion forward corporation. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. So what, what was its sense of style? Yeah, I, so what's interesting actually is that um, 
DuPont's sense of fashion was not necessarily what we associate with Parisian fashion, which at the time was really the fashion mecca. It was actually less about design than about textiles or fabrics. And of course, this is because it makes sense. That's what DuPont really specialized in. That was their bread and butter. Uh, so that was kind of a, um, a wow moment for me that, you know, um, when we think about fashion even now, it's really about um, the design and how unique that is. Uh, whereas for DuPont, it was, oh, you know, this is stuff that could be mass manufactured. And they actually would openly advertise and say, oh, look, this is a French designer whom we got an American to copy. <laughs> uh, and we just made it with our fabrics. So I thought, wow, that's like something to brag about. And that is what was an indicator of modernity at the moment. Mm -hmm. That was something that was novel and um, stylistically distinct. That, um, and in this way, maybe it's less actually about visuality than about touch. Uh, that it is, uh, you know, it's about the fabric that, um, how you take care of it, how it feels against your skin, uh, I, it was a fairly conservative, I think, fashion um, ethos. So um, it was less about overt sexuality than maybe, you know, this fabric feels sensuous against you. <laughs> um, so it actually, I think, did have a very distinct fashion sensibility. Uh, and, you know, one could say, oh, they were not fashion forward. They were kind of fashion backward. They were kind of crude. <laughs> Um, but actually, they were just articulating a specific version of forwardness, I think. And so it's the synthetic textiles, uh, different synthetics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Please, please. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess the thing that um, I'm still sort of looking into, but um, that I also found kind of provocative is that synthetics were, I mean, it was so common to see them described as displacing uh, natural resources and being better than them. Um, but the fact that these natural resources like rubber and silk, which are some in cotton, uh, were often, or uh, indigo or musk and things like that, these are sourced from uh, former colonies or decolonizing nations. Mm. Um, so to be able to say like, oh, you know, one way that we distinguish ourselves from Germany or Paris or, London, you know, we have our own synthetic fabrics and we aren't reliant on uh, these other colonial outposts, uh, that this is a, a new version of, I would say, empire, actually. Yeah, and, and one with a sort of the implicit promise of democratization, as you're saying, yeah. 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 And I mean, it was very distinctive of its moment, too, that this kind of... Um, uh, ideal, these ideals about fashion didn't really um, see their way maybe past the late 1970s or 1980s. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think it was actually historically distinctive. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I know you're not necessarily using um, the Trans-Pacific Middle, um, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering whether, uh, my question was going to be whether uh, or how the Trans-Pacific Middle shapes later trans-Pacific interactions. Um, so I guess we don't necessarily need that frame, but um, uh, how does your work perhaps cast light on subsequent um, interaction across the Pacific? Hmm. Um, well, my the book that I just finished writing deals with that a little bit, okay. uh, where I'm interested in how uh, US interventions in 
various parts of Asia, so mostly East Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, so these could be democratization projects or uh, volunteering humanitarian projects, how they kind of allow us to see the formation of uh, what's better known as the Pacific Rim, uh, or that a term that came into prominence kind of in the 1980s or 1990s, particularly with respect to Japan. Uh, being seen as a kind of economic competitor to uh, Europe and the United States. Uh, and I mean, in the case of Japan, I think it's particularly clear that the U.S. investment of capital and the uh, U.S. occupation of Japan uh, clearly kind of um, were invested ideologically and economically in having it as a democratic capitalist anti-communist hub in East Asia. Uh, and we can, I mean, mostly from the 1980s and 1990s, we can kind of see how um, uh, what were called the four Asian tigers at the time, Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, and which one is Singapore, uh, were all uh, kind of within the US Cold War ambit. So there's some kind of relationship that was developed during the Cold War that enabled this kind of supposedly miraculous economic development, which I think we still kind of see that discourse. Uh, so the fascinating question now is China, uh, which was not at all um, uh, a kind of US stooge or um, part of the uh, um, uh, a US ally even. Uh, so to kind of see how that relationship develops, and I mean, it's being called the second Cold War right now. Uh, which I think is kind of an unfair title because it seems um, distinct in its uh, kind of um, resonances, but that we can certainly trace uh, developments. And I mean, I think even the China-Hong Kong-US relationship is something that I, one would hope that um, could be seen in the context of both the Cold War and decolonization efforts. I wouldn't like to end our conversation without uh, hearing a little bit more about the, the book you've just completed. Would you like, uh, <laughs> would you care to? Oh gosh. Um, Is that a whole nother can of worms? <laughs> it's not a whole nother can of worms. I mean, it's dealing with similar questions, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 it's more literary in focus. So it's mostly looking at, um, it looks at contemporary novels and films and it pairs uh, particular artists or it thinks about particular art artists, Asian diasporic artists, in conjunction with um, a, a self-representing free Asian, so to speak, um, to borrow the language of the book, mm -hmm. of uh, Asians or Asian Americans who are kind of recruited by the US government to represent their nation. Uh, so kind of the question there is, what does self-representation look like uh, at a more contemporary moment? Uh, and then what does it look like at a Cold War moment? And part of the claim is that self-representation or this idea of um, being able to provide a reliable ethnic truth about oneself really uh, came into, became a kind of um, palatable source of information, of intelligence even, during the Cold War. So that provides the context or the frame, the motivating um, uh, situation for thinking about self-representation now. What is the title of your book? It's called Tonal Intelligence. Uh, the America, uh, it's called Tonal Intelligence, uh, the Aesthetics of Asian Inscrutability During the Long Cold War. 
you can tell that after writing it, I kind of try to forget about it. <laughs> it's still a little bit embarrassing to talk about. Well, I really appreciate you sharing it uh, with us and for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Uh, it was fun. It's the first time I've talked about this project or the new one. Uh, so. It sounds like it has a lot of promise. I'm looking forward to it. And I hope that someday I'll be able to make it back to the Hackley. <laughs> Absolutely. And and for our audience, if you'd like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and our research grants and fellowship programs, you can visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And uh, Sonny, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Greg. It was wonderful talking. Take Bye. care. Bye.